0: Welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. My name is David Chen, and joining me today, he is the man who played Professor Sheffield on the NBC original series Community, Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir?
1: I am doing very good. Thank you for the community shout-out.
0: Of course, uh, I actually quite enjoy this episode, and this is very topical because people are listening to this uh, at a point that's hopefully not too late after this episode came on the air, Uh, and you played Professor Sheffield, a a professor who devoted his entire life to studying the television show Who's the Boss? Is that correct? That is correct, and in fact,
1: David, I even wrote a little behind-the-scenes story uh, about my playing the role on Community for The rap
0: Yes, yeah, so therap.com. I, I read that. That was quite but, heartwarming about how – or some people said it was literally heartwarming in the sense that you described uh, how uh, this show, working on The Community, helped you to recover from your heart surgery, right?
1: Yeah, I actually had heart surgery, if you can believe that. Well, I, I'm still trying to believe it. I'm still well, trying to.
0: Well, you sound good, Stephen, and your story – You know what
1: people say to me, David? They say – uh when they hear that I had open heart surgery this year and their jaw drops to kind of around where their belly button is and they go, You're kidding me. You know, that could be a subject for a good podcast. <laughs> and I go, you think?
0: Very cool. Very so cool. So just
1: so everybody don't worry, it's it's on the way and yes. you'll know all the all the true behind the scenes stories of what it's like to be on the operating
0: table. <laughs> 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 well, I highly recommend that episode of Community. Uh, but Stephen, let's get into today's episode. You know, yes, sir. when I am not helping you host the Tobolowsky Files, I actually host another podcast called the Slash Filmcast at SlashFilm.com. And me and my co hosts on that show, we are extremely passionate about movies. I assume you are as well. Yes, sir?
1: Well, actually, yeah. You know, we met, I guess, over a movie, uh, Stephen Tobolowski's Birthday Party. But you did not know at the time that I am probably just as big a rabid a fan of movies. And I said rabid, not rabbit. Uh, even though I do like rabbit movies, too, like uh, Night of the Lupus. Yeah, Watership, I, Watership Lepus, Down. Lepus, Night of the Lepus. I've seen that movie. <laughs> I own that movie. I've always loved movies. Uh, you didn't know I was such a movie fan when we first started talking to one another. Uh, but I, I, I've developed different theories, I think, about the movies than you have, David. I, I think you still consider movies an art form. <laughs> and I have to say that I've always, always, always loved movies. And for me, it didn't matter what kind they were. And I used to think, David, that I enjoyed them because of the story or the acting or even the great music. But now I'm not so sure. I have a new theory I think I like movies because it's one of the few times you get to see a story from the beginning to the end. Life isn't like the movies. You almost never get the whole story. There's always something missing. We almost never get to see the beginning of the story unless we're falling in love or see the birth of our child. We rarely see the end of a story unless we're at our friend's bedside. And then the story's almost too hard to tell. So... We use photo albums to remember the past and New Year's resolutions to try to penetrate the future. But generally, we spend a lot of time in the middle of it all, in confusion. Beavers don't. If you drop a beaver anywhere, he will try to build a dam. And that's because a beaver is only telling one story. My life is a beaver. But we tell many, and it's a great responsibility. We seem to be the happiest when our past and our future seem to describe some kind of straight line. We have the illusion that we're on the right track. During these periods, we're usually filled with optimism. We have the confidence to do almost anything, even upgrading the operating system on our computers. But if we sense that the past and future are somehow disconnected, the train can come off the tracks. The first sign of systemic confusion Is usually the use of new hair care products A 40 year old man suddenly trying moose may seem innocuous But it's really a cry for help This lack of clarity can happen to young and old alike And if unchecked can lead to a sort of spiritual panic And once the spiritual foundation starts to crumble The human can start a process we share with the butterflies Metamorphosis We attempt to change who we are on every level. Now, we don't have as easy an access to transformation as the monarch. Instead of cocoons, we depend on something less tangible but equally remarkable. We romantically call it a change of heart. I witnessed an amazing example of this a few years ago at our little synagogue. A very handsome young man was brought up to the front by a rabbi and was asked to explain to the congregation what had happened to him. He said that his older brother had died unexpectedly. His brother was a fireman. meant the world to him. He was his hero. His death made him rethink what life was and why he was here on earth. He felt it sent him on a mission to find a higher purpose for the events that had recently hurt him so much. The rabbi asked what he intended to do, and the young man said, The only thing I can do, I'm going to Israel. I am reconnecting with my heritage. I'm going to become a rabbi. We were all in tears. Afterwards, at the snack and fruit punch part of the service, we all hugged him and wished him well. He shook my hand. I told him I admired him. I just met him a few weeks ago, and now I felt I was losing an old friend. I was sorry to see him go, but hoped he had a successful journey. Fade out, fade in. Six months pass. Life goes on, as it tends to do. I show up at Friday night services, and there is the young man. He's more tan. He has shoulder-length hair. He's surrounded by members of the congregation. I was so excited. I ran up to him. I hugged him. I asked him, how was Israel? How is the university? He looked at me and said, well, he never made it out of the country. He ended up having to pay some bills, so he's been working for a cable company for the last four months, answering phones and sending out statements. I said, well, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. Fade out, fade in. Three months later, I see him again at the synagogue. I ask him how the cable company was treating him. He said he had a problem with his boss, so now he's working for a company that was making porno films in the San Fernando Valley. He made it clear that he was only doing video editing, strictly behind-the-scenes stuff. I was speechless. I was terrified to see him again for fear the next time he would have changed his name to Ricky Ramrod, star of The Rough Riders. Now, his story is a lot more common than it seems at first. Because we all end up changing our trajectory. The problem is, we have so many conflicting clues from our past as to who we are, we can never be too sure of where we're going to end up. Example. I had just finished shooting Mississippi Burning in 1988 and had come back to Los Angeles. I felt like my experience on that movie changed me in a lot of ways. I had the rare opportunity to work with a great director, Alan Parker. For the first time I had an important part in an important movie But there were other versions of me from the past that were confusing the picture I was in Mississippi where I had visited Beth so many times over the last 16 years Jackson was Beth's world With her family, her friends, her past, her entire mythology This time I was without her Now it should have been a good thing Fate had given me a chance to experience that place as an individual and create a new set of memories, but I couldn't appreciate it at the time. It all hurt too much. Memories came at me from every direction. There were streets I recognized, the way the air smelled, the blooming dogwood trees alongside the road. One day on the way to location, we drove by Beth's high school. It all killed me. One day I felt brave and decided to drive by her house. That was a mistake. Just as I turned down her street, I saw her sister was pulling out of the driveway, so I had to duck under the dashboard. I drove with my hand on the wheel and my head between my knees for a minute or so, relying on prayer to avoid hitting anything. While my head was down there, I asked myself what I thought I was doing, and I answered I had no idea. Even if my expectations for the drive-by worked out perfectly, what did I expect to gain from my semi-stalking behavior? I was embarrassed. I was in the middle of an identity crisis. I wasn't terribly sure who I was anymore. I could have started working for that porno company with my friend that afternoon if the opportunity presented itself. The human character is made up of the same forces that make up the universe. First, there is gravity. The past always has a strong grip on us. I see proof of this every time I walk into my closet. I keep things that look good on me at one point in history when I could fit into them. Now, I know I'm not keeping them because I'm going to wear them again. Now, they only represent a monument to my former self, a landmark with a 34-inch waist. Beside being a potential stalker, I returned from Mississippi with another identity as well. Successful actor It was pure irony That my career completely turned around When Beth and I parted In fact, I remember one moment With a particular pang Near the end of our relationship Beth had a huge victory With Crimes of the Heart The victory was personal and professional Spiritual as well if you keep score Along with the Broadway success Came a wonderful movie deal And a director had been picked for the film Bruce Beresford Bruce had directed interesting films like Breaker Morant and Tender Mercies. He loved the play. He was coming to Los Angeles to meet Beth and wanted to have dinner with us. I was thrilled. Crimes of the Heart has been one of those pieces that can be directed as a zany, shallow comedy or as a beautiful piece on human love and endurance. With Bruce Beresford at the helm, the odds were on love and endurance. We picked him up for dinner. In the back of my mind... I thought I would have another chance of playing Barnett, the part Beth wrote for me, the part I auditioned for but didn't get in New York. It didn't quite work out that way. We met Bruce, who was filled with warmth and charm. Within the first hour, he started talking about casting the film. And then with a good-hearted laugh, he mentioned how difficult finding the right people would be. For example, he would never, never, never consider me for the role of Barnett. My heart sank. That was bad, but it got worse. Bruce continued saying, with an amount of certainty, that I would never have a film career because I was unphotogenic. Yes, within a minute, I went from the unemployment line to the leper colony. Now, I should stress, he never said it with the intent of being cruel. He never said it with the intent of having a long-lasting hurtful effect. In fact, he was actually trying to be helpful and give me a bit of advice to prevent disappointment in the future. I, of course, was humiliated, but just nodded. I took it silently for fear of ruining the evening for Beth by bursting into tears or setting the restaurant on fire. I never knew whether Bruce's advice had any effect on Beth in her attitude toward me, because he branded me with something indelible as an actor who would never be able to work at any professional level other than maybe working with sock puppets in children's theater. But the conversation moved along. Champagne was poured. Smiles at the dinner table were a sign that the comment was not to be taken as a personal attack. I would still be invited to the premiere. That evening hung on me, and the end of our relationship, like the smell of high karate cologne, we poured down my brother's leg cast when we were little. I was branded a failure, publicly. This time, the judge was not a college professor like Joan Potter, but a working professional that I respected and admired. And most importantly, now I was actually old enough to be a failure. Before, I was just a student. It was an indulgence on my part to think of myself as failing when I was only 20 years old. I had never been tested by the world, but now I was in my 30s. My hair was thinning. I had been given a shot, and the world found me wanting. That was until Mississippi Burning. I ended up with five new film jobs by the time I got home. No one had seen the movie, but Alan's reputation was so strong, people wanted to cast me by contagion. I can tell you now that at my return, flush with success, nothing gave me more pleasure than recalling Bruce's words only three years before. My limo drove me from the airport Up the hill to our home on stilts I was greeted by beautiful Ann And the less beautiful but ever enthusiastic Pooch Coco, the insane cat Took only slight notice of my arrival And then went back to sleep in Pooch's bed I rubbed Pooch's tummy And she whimpered and shook all over And then ran for her leash Anne laughed and said Well, I guess the mistress of the house has spoken A walk it is And before I even unpacked, we were off on a pooch walk around the neighborhood. Coco decided to join us. So it was Ann and me and our two great children. It was a sort of dusky time of day. The sky was beautiful. The rush hour traffic slowly wound its way through the city below us. And I was completely happy. What is it about the nature of happiness that it came when I was least expecting it? Maybe it's a mistake to expect happiness to be a product of the high moments of our lives. Maybe it's more like movie music, invisible, until a beautiful theme arises from nowhere and surrounds you unexpectedly, like love at first sight. Maybe part of its charm is that it takes you by surprise. Or maybe it's part of the metamorphosis, another clue that you're on the right path, even when that path is just to walk around the block on a lovely night. One of the great acting teachers I've had in my life was Ed K. Martin. Beth and I encountered Ed for the first time at the University of Illinois, and it was not pretty. Ed brutalized Beth for an entire semester until she stood her ground one day in class. The pressure and heat of that one encounter worked like the geologic forces in the earth and made our relationship with Ed metamorphic. One day he was changed from a tormentor to To a champion One of Ed's primary teachings I found to be continually true over the years In acting The two most important things you need to know about a character Is what is their greatest hope And what is their greatest fear These two points Make a straight line On which every other thought or feeling That character has Can be found I would add a corollary I think the same thing is true in life The only difference is a play never changes. Romeo and Juliet will continue throughout time with the same hopes and fears. Not true with us. At any moment, we could be sideswiped by a sudden loss or a new opportunity that changes the whole hope-fear equation of who we are. Any sizable event, bad or good, can start a landslide of multiple personalities before we even know what hit us We have a new identity. So it's not surprising to look back at my friend at the synagogue and understand that his entire cascade began with the sudden death of his brother. This is, of course, a very dangerous human trait on a lot of levels, especially considering people value predictability over excellence. To feel your destiny has shifted from being a rabbi to being a porn star within a year can be confusing. It can lead to catastrophe in a relationship. On the bright side, sudden shifts in identity are the lifeblood of the mental health and prescription drug industry in America. In 1985, now this is two years before I was cast in Mississippi Burning, my career was pretty much acting and directing for the theater. I had done a few movies and television shows, but the stage was where I wanted to be. Partly, I think, because the stage seemed to want me. I had acted and directed in New York. But now an amazing four-stage complex was opening in downtown Los Angeles. It was a multi-million dollar palace for theater aptly named the Los Angeles Theater Center. L.A.T.C. L.A.T.C. was to be the new showplace for theater. Plays old and new, from Shakespeare to brand new playwrights on the block. Uh, It was here that I first worked with Anne as an actress. We played opposite one another in Chekhov's The Three Sisters, one of the four plays that christened the entire complex. Sidebar, we were not romantically involved at the time. In fact, I thought of her as the strange, quiet girl who sat alone in the corner at rehearsal. For those interested in chronology, we're still a couple years away from a first kiss or an evening of moonlight in the tomato garden. My life at this time was an emotional war zone. It was marked by a series of highs and lows that had set me adrift. My relationship with Beth had lost its direction. We were spending lots of time apart. In 1984, I was in New York for months directing and overseeing her play, The Miss Firecracker Contest, while she was in Los Angeles. It was the same time period I had a memorable night with Bruce Beresford when he told me I would never have a career. But this was also a time of sudden victories, such as meeting David Byrne, working with him on True Stories. My greatest hope, my greatest fear poles were shifting daily. I was directionless with no compass. My desire for predictability made me hunger for something I can count on. Unfortunately, I picked cocaine. Like it or not, addiction will always be a part of the human character. It's our way to imitate the past's hold on us. My introduction to the drug happened on the night I bought my first electric guitar. I had friends over. We were sitting around playing songs, and one of the good guitarists of the group pulled out a little opaque vial and a spoon and said, what, you never tried it? Come on, it's fun. I don't know what the most persuasive part of his offer was, if it was the irresistible lure of untried fun, or simply his saying, come on. Anyway, I went. My addiction wasn't immediate. It crept up on me over a series of months. You have to remember, cocaine addiction wasn't even a problem on the charts at that point in history. It was just a party drug that made you popular with women you didn't know and with guys who would eventually want to steal your guitar. Cocaine was a substitute the 1980s came up with having something worthwhile to say. People would gather around and look at you admiringly as if you were dispensing wit and wisdom. Pause for recap. Over the next few years, I had many experiences which I have chronicled in the Toboloski files that were a direct result of my using cocaine. There's the story of the orgy with me naked in a red derby mopping up the floor. An evening where I tried to flirt with strange women in our hot tub with blood running out of my nose and running down my chest. There was the embarrassing moment with David Byrne Many, many more, which I'm sure we'll get to one day Anyway It all culminated one evening when I was in an alley behind a popular Italian restaurant where I met my drug dealer I paid him I had a hit in the alley before I returned to the festivities inside As I walked back in I was confronted by Bob My best friend fellow actor, ex-Marine. He took me by the arm and led me over to a corner of the restaurant. He grabbed me by the shoulders and looked at me in the eye and said, Are you all right? I laughed and said, Hey, sure. I started to head back to my table, but Bob would have none of it. He pulled me back and held me tighter, and he put his face in my face, Marine boot camp style, and he repeated, Stephen, I'm asking you if you are all right I couldn't answer him. He continued. You don't have to say nothing. I'm telling you, you're not. You're not all right. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm here to tell you. I'll help you. Whatever you need, bro. We will get out of this. I will sit on you. I will feed you. I will lock your ass up, but I won't let you die like this. Let me tell you straight out. That's where you're headed. I was a heroin addict. I know the road. I have eyes, pal. I could see. Now go on back to dinner. Just know, I'm here. I was lucky in that I was never completely swallowed up in that drug, as so many others have been. I never spent more than $800 a week. And that was a lot back then, but it was still a lot less than what some of my drug friends spent. Friends who lost their homes relationships, even went into debt to maintain their new identity as, quote, casual drug user who thought it would be cool to die young, end quote. I'm not being dramatic. That was the boast, to die young and leave a beautiful corpse. Foolishness. People who came up with that one either didn't know corpses or didn't know beauty. After the confrontation with Bob, I was embarrassed and certainly felt defensive. But I also clearly saw that he was telling me the truth. I was headed down a road that led to absolute destruction, and I seemed powerless to stop. Despite all of my various resolves, I always ended up buying and using more cocaine. I was unaware of my hope-fear corollary back then. I never suspected that I probably either needed a catastrophe— hitting bottom, as they say on the intervention television shows nowadays, or have a powerfully positive change to help me break free and reinvent myself once again. Quite accidentally, the play, The Three Sisters, started the change. First, it was a wonderful professional break for me to take on the most beautifully written, heartbreaking role in the play, Baron Tuzenbach. I got to play it opposite Anne. Who was magnificent I got to work with one of the great theater directors of the world Stein Vinga From the National Theater of Norway Stein and I would do several plays As a result of working on The Three Sisters Truthfully, the most powerful influence on me Came from someone who had died 80 years Before we even started rehearsal Chekhov himself Working daily on the play With his beautiful words and incredibly painful thoughts about the shortness of life and the absolute fragility of our dreams had an effect. Call it the ultimate truth of art. Like the physical qualities of light in the universe, without actual substance, it can travel forever, changing everything it touches. Chekhov changed me. I didn't want to end up like the poor baron, without love, without hope, resigned to walk out one day calmly to meet a certain death. I had to stop taking cocaine, and I had to do it without the help of Dr. Drew. He was still a teenager at the time. He, he didn't even know me. I devised a plan. I came up with something out of the blue with no actual scientific or medical studies to support it. I made a deal with myself. I assumed my desire to take drugs was some perversion of my desire to pamper or indulge myself. I was living the psychological equivalent of commercials for Las Vegas. Somewhere, somehow, my psyche decided to go on a narcissistic binge. So I decided not to tamper with the instinct, just the expression of the instinct. Metamorphosis, By redirection I made a deal with me That I had to spend the same amount of money on myself Every week that I spent on cocaine I just had to buy other things Do you know how hard it is To spend $800 a week on yourself When you're not buying cocaine It's brutal Well, okay, the first week it's possible You buy a bottle of good cognac And two bottles of French wine Done But then you have to drink it it's hard to drink that much cognac in one sitting. After a couple sniffers, you're too drunk to get in the car to buy drugs. The second week, I bought an Italian sport coat. The third week, I bought season tickets to the symphony. The fourth week, I bought two pairs of Gabardine slacks and considered putting money down on a set of encyclopedias. By the fifth week, I was too busy wearing my new jacket to the symphony, coming home drinking Paradiso and smoking black market Cuban cigars. To even think of cocaine After a couple months Of outrageous spending My plan appeared to be working Sort of I hadn't bought any coke Which was good But I was smoking cigars Eating gourmet French food And drinking vintage Single malt scotch Non-stop I won't lie I still had the urge To buy cocaine But by then I was friends With the owner Of the liquor store And he was a much better Companion than my drug dealer And he didn't carry a gun And he gave me free samples Eventually I was exhausted from spending money on myself And finally I gave myself permission to take it easy And put some of the money in the bank The addiction was gone I had successfully redefined myself as an actor and a director With multiple vices and a closet full of Italian suits I was proud of my superficial approach Years later I found out my technique wasn't so crazy It actually exists in other disciplines When I learned to ride, my instructor told me to use a similar tactic with a runaway horse. Once a horse is running and on a full-bore gallop, it's almost impossible to get him to stop. But you can get him to change his gait. And once you get him to move from a gallop to a trot, you can gradually and safely change the speed of the trot and get him to walk and eventually to stop. The other interesting comparison is with acting. Stanislavski never pretended to know where an actor would find the emotional life of the character he was playing He taught his students to respect all of the tools at your disposal Even seemingly superficial or trivial aspects of a production can help Sometimes a costume, a prop, a piece of furniture on the set could open the door for you to feel that you were your character The great actor Laurence Olivier said on several occasions that the most important thing for him in acting was finding the shoes his character wore. In other interviews, he said the most important thing was finding the right nose, and this was years before The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills was a success. Looking back, I can say that my escape from addiction came from adopting tiny, positive gestures and not from working with the great underlying motivations for my self-destruction. I still have no idea what they were or are, and I'm not recommending my methods at all. I had and still have absolutely no idea of what I was doing or why it worked. I'm only thankful that the same road that led into the Valley of Transformation also led out again. One afternoon in the bad old days, as part of my Indulge Steven project, I went to a concert at the County Museum of Art. After listening to Rachmaninoff, I wandered over to the La Brea tar pits next door. I went inside the Page Museum that houses all those bones of animals that sunk into the ooze. They had a special exhibit on prehistoric man, and they were telling the story of the first little human that came out of the trees. They showed photographs of the remains of Lucy, the famous little prehistoric lady they found in 1974. They had a reproduction of her skeleton and an actual mock-up of how she looked. She was short and hairy, like the woman who taught us art in fourth grade. But she was kind of cute in a prehistoric sort of way. Okay, she had nice eyes. They explained that a big factor in the first human beings walking upright was the height of the grass on the African savanna. The first little ape-like people had to stand upright to see over the vegetation to make sure predators weren't coming. The exhibit talked about other stages along man's way. There was Java man, or not. There was controversy that maybe the Java man could have just been a large gibbon monkey. There was the Peking man, or not. There were discussions that he could have just been a Java man with arthritis. I found it interesting that however unsure the scientists were about what they found, they were always sure about what it meant. The evolution of man. The triggers for evolution were always the same. Climate, diet, genetics. The possibility never seemed to enter the discussion that evolution could also be spiritual. And that maybe they missed a stage. The metamorphic man. He may have been a fellow who was almost killed by a mastodon one day. And that night, he had an incomprehensible dream of an office building. He woke up the next morning and took his woman by the hand, and he set off for points unknown with change on his mind. One of the most predictable aspects of the human personality is the desire to make other people change. Maybe it's the security of strength in numbers, or maybe it's just the adult version of working with Play-Doh. Whatever it is, during the production of The Three Sisters, I became involved with one of the most ambitious, and in the end, one of the most interesting renovation projects in my life. The area where the Los Angeles Theater Center was located was remarkable. It was as close to Armageddon as you could get without going to the movies. Like most large theaters across America, it was built where land was the cheapest, and in this case, it meant right across the middle of Skid Row. At its most dressed up, the surrounding area looked like the city in Blade Runner. Oh, wait. This is where they shot the city in Blade Runner. Anyway, when we arrived at the theater, the smell of urine and alcohol was overwhelming. We would run from the actor's parking lot behind the theater to the back door for the safety of our dressing rooms. We would never walk outside alone. We would never let a woman walk unescorted to her car. After the show, we had to leave the building. It was like a horror film where the vampires slowly step out of the shadows. Around midnight, the darkness would start to move and human beings shuffled out to continue their unimaginable lives of living on the streets. The lucky ones slept in refrigerator boxes The unlucky ones stayed up all night For fear of becoming a victim of someone Half out of their mind on drugs Or someone just half out of their mind One night I parked and was headed in For a performance of the three sisters When I saw a black man In an oversized army surplus jacket Making his way through the cars toward me I picked up my pace Hoping to get to the back door Before he intercepted me It didn't work He called out, Excuse me, sir? Damn. He called me, sir. I had to stop. I turned and he approached me. I was prepared for the worst, which meant I would probably turn into a rabbit, fall on the ground, paralyzed from fear. He said, Sir, I don't mean to bother you. I need some money. I nodded and said nothing. He said, You're an actor, ain't you? I said, Yes. He said, what if I wash your windows while you're doing your thing? I was both surprised and relieved I wasn't being robbed. So I said, fine. I reached for my wallet before I thought whether or not that was a wise thing to do and said, how much do you charge? He held out his hand and said, no, sir, you pay me nothing now. When you come out, you see the job I've done. You pay me what you think it's worth. His plan sounded fair And I realized it had two big negatives for me. One, I would have to see this man again. And two, I would have to see him after the show when the area was deserted. But I agreed and went inside. I told the rest of the cast members about my encounter. My friend Bruce Wright volunteered to escort me to the car after the show in case there was any trouble. We finished the play. Bruce and I headed out at midnight... And there in the poorly lit parking lot, I could see our fellow standing beside my car, waiting. He waved and smiled. I walked up to him and looked at my car. I moved around trying to get a better view because I couldn't quite believe what I saw. This man hadn't washed my windshield. He washed my entire car. I I said, excuse me, shy, he interjected. I said, I beg your pardon? The man smiled and said, my name is Shy. I didn't quite know what to say. I just blundered onward and said, Shy, I thought you said you were just washing the windshield? I did, sir. But your car was so dirty, very dirty, in fact. And I had the time, so I thought I'd do you a real good job. And it was a good job. At least, it appeared to be so by moonlight. I reached for my wallet and pulled out a 20. I handed it to him. Shy nodded and said, "Thank you," and started to leave. And Bruce stopped him and said, "Excuse me, Shy?" Shy stopped and turned to Bruce. "Yes, sir?" Bruce said offhandedly, "Shy, if you're here tomorrow, my car could use a wash." Shy broke out into a huge grin and said, "I'll be here, sir. I'll be here." I looked at Bruce. He smiled and shrugged. And thus began the legend of Shy. The word spread throughout our cast and through the cast of the other three shows playing in the building. Each night, different actors would ask Shy to wash their cars. Each night, Shy got $20 for a car for his efforts. But Susan Tyrell, who was starring in one of the other shows, found Shy a far more compelling character than just a vagrant picking up some loose change. Susan became impassioned by the potential and shy After the shows finished All of the actors used to head over to Irwin's Which was a very nice restaurant and bar Which has long since vanished into the ugly concrete Susan approached several of us She made an appeal That everyone always looks for a chance to make a difference And now we had the chance It was staring us in the face we could help this man become something. I had always admired Susan's acting. In fact, she was one of the few actors whose appearance in a movie would ensure that I would be there in line opening week. As an actress, she was always unpredictable and fearless. Shy could not have had a more powerful advocate. I told Susan I would ship in whatever she thought was best. Susan thanked me. She hatched a plan. The next night after the show, Susan approached Shy and asked if he enjoyed washing cars. Shy said it was great. Susan said she would have a surprise for him in a couple days. Susan came to our dressing room and asked for donations to buy Shy a car washer's kit. She left with over $100. The next night in the parking lot, Susan presented Shy with a toolbox filled with professional brushes, wax, polishes, touch-up paints, Everything he would need to branch out and appear to be professional. Shy was clearly moved by the gift. He thanked us and offered his hand to Susan, who hugged him. <laughs> Shy's eyes filled with tears, and he took a step back and thanked us again. We all felt like we had done a good deed, and it was clearly one of those nights that I felt like I had been part of something that was completely good. Little did we know, the story had just begun. The next night, we had finished our show and were headed home when Shai approached us. He said, you know, I want to thank you all again for the box and the brushes. I appreciate them, but there's something I really want to do I need help for. We were all quiet, ready for the request. Shy continued, what you do in there, the acting, the plays, I never seen a play. That's what I want to do. Susan stepped forward and said, You will. You will see them all. But you can't see them like this. Susan gestured to Shy, who looked down at his clothes. She said, You need clothes, and you need a shower. I'll be here tomorrow at noon. You meet me here in the parking lot. <laughs> S- Susan was never a person of half measures. She picked up Shy and drove him to her home in Santa Monica. She let him shower. She took him to a clothing store. That evening, we were introduced to a new man. Shy stood in the parking lot in a three-piece gray suit, new black dress shoes. He saw Susan's play, which was a contemporary drama. He loved it. After the show, he followed us over to Irwin's to discuss the play with Susan. From across the restaurant, I saw the two of them. Shy was speaking with great animation in his three-piece suit with a glass of Chardonnay in his hand. The next night, he said he wanted to see our play. We bought him a ticket. He sat through all three and a half hours of Chekhov's The Three Sisters. After the show, he was waiting for us in the parking lot. He was shaking his head. He said, now Dad, was something, really something. I never seen anything like that, never even imagined anything like that. That's so true, that play. You could dream, and you could dream, but those ladies are never getting to Moscow. And you know, even if they do go to Moscow, it don't mean they'll really go to Moscow, because the Moscow they're really after is in the head. I was taken back by Shai's dramaturgy. I was sure Chekhov would have been pleased. Susan started the next phase of our version of My Fair Lady, remaking Shy into our new Pygmalion. Susan told Shy that the street was too dangerous for him. Perhaps he could move. Move to the beach. Santa Monica would be cleaner and safer. She could get him a job at the Santa Monica car wash. He could make good money as a custom detailer. It was right down the street from her apartment. Shy could stay with her until he made enough money for a place near work. From there... The elevator of life only went up. Shy got the job and started staying in Susan's spare bedroom. And that's where I often feel the story is coming to an end. Swelling music, the surprising happiness rises. It surrounds us. That's one of the downsides of not living in a movie where you see the whole story. When you never really know the beginning of something and you never really see the end. Life can be extremely unpredictable. The next night, when we got to the theater, there were police cars in the parking lot. They were looking at a broken window in the parking lot office and were asking an attendant there some questions. We got to our dressing room, and there were stacks of free monthly parking passes for the back lot. Each pass was worth over $200. That night, when we left the theater, Shy ran up to greet us in new coveralls that Susan bought him and his old army jacket. He was beaming. He said, you get my present? I said, your present? He whispered, the parking passes. We looked at each other in confusion, and Shy said, it's my way of thanking y'all for all you did for me. Shy got very secretive. He gestured to the area now marked off with yellow police tape and whispered, I busted into the office last night and got him. Free parking for all you folks I said, Shy Shy, what did you do? We can't use these They're all numbered They're all stolen We would be arrested And they would ask us where we got them And Shy, they probably have video in the office They'll find you I was crushed In one moment All of our good efforts seemed to be lying in the dust His countenance changed to one of a little boy Who had just gotten scolded He desperately walked around to talk to me. He said, Mr. Stephen, don't be mad. I was only trying to help. I said, Shy, you were almost out of here. You were almost free of this. Shy suddenly calmed down and smiled. Mr. Stephen, I appreciate all you've done. But, sir, I don't want to be free of this because this, Shy gestured around him, is free. I'm free here not wearing a suit, not working at a car wash. I get a disability check from the government every month. It pays for all the drugs I want. I get all the women I want. I sleep under the stars. That's my life. I came here from Pittsburgh. I arrived at that bus station on the corner right over there and I went straight to the streets and I have no regrets. I love my life. I thank you for the brushes and all. And I promise I'll use them. Shy started to walk away, and then he turned back and said, But I did love that play. It was beautiful, and it was true, truer than true. Shy walked down the alley, and I never saw him again. He was a counter to myself. There was no metamorphic man in Shy. There was no change, no redefinition. It was a tragedy worthy of Chekhov As he walked away I was struck by how sad it all made me I got home that night after midnight And poured myself a vodka An expected side effect of doing a Russian play And I sat outside alone It was one of those starless nights in Los Angeles I looked up at nothing in particular And thought about my final encounter with Shy. My mind went to the phrase Shy clung to That he was free. Of course he wasn't. He was dependent on the government check at the first of every month, just as I was dependent on cocaine. But in a way, he was right. In a savage world, the only freedom we have is the choice of which God to serve. I took another sip of vodka and made another deal with myself. Starting tomorrow, I would choose my gods wisely.
0: That was The Metamorphic Man, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowski, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week?
1: I think a great place is go to Uh You'll find all of the Tobolowski file stories, plus a way to reach me, my email, see me on Facebook and Twitter. And also uh, take a look at com. And you'll find the original story I wrote for Kindle Single, which won't appear on the Tobolowsky Files.
0: Right, which you can read on any electronic format uh, or any electronic device. And uh, we'd really appreciate it if you check that out and help support the show. You can find me and everything else I do at SlashFilm.com. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowsky Files. We're
1: out. Adios.